Hello, welcome to series two of Shooting Azimuths, a podcast chiefly devised to allow me to chat to the people I admire the most in education. This series features the speakers who will be addressing the Embley Education Conference that takes place on the 14th of April. To find out more about the conference and to book your place, please visit www.embley.org.uk forward slash conference. In today's episode, we welcome Alom Shaha, who is a science teacher, a broadcaster, a writer, and a father of two who has spent most of his professional life trying to share his passion for science and education with the public. Good morning, Alam. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm a secondary school physics teacher, but uh, primarily I'm a father to two young girls aged five and four. So really, that's my main job. And then I also uh, dabble a bit in writing books, I suppose. Fantastic. And, and, and I think you sell yourself short there, because uh, in addition to being a teacher, you have also been um, a number of things. Uh, you've been a local councillor, you've been a governor, um, you're a broadcaster, you appear on TV on occasion. Why have you been so interested in, in science and education? Well, education, firstly, I think really gave me everything that I have in life really I, I lead a very comfortable and privileged existence now um, having been uh, born in Bangladesh in, in rather impoverished circumstances and arrived in this country at the age of about three and have been very fortunate to have had very good educational opportunities throughout my, my early childhood from primary school where I had these amazing teachers who really cared about their students' well-being and ensured that we thrived and prospered under their care to a, a very good kind of academic education at secondary school in a very different environment, but one where I was pushed to excel academically mm. and where the foundations were laid for my, my rather varied uh, career, if you like. What led you towards the sciences as opposed to, say, the humanities? Again, I would absolutely credit my teachers. Uh, you know, like a lot of teenagers, I, I don't think I was particularly good at science over the arts. And in fact, if you'd asked me at 15, I probably would have said my favourite subject was English. Okay. And I think the key difference in terms of the, the career path that I ended up on uh, was my teachers, really, because... You know, I loved English. I did very well at it in school. You know, um, uh, it sounds awful, but, you know, I was a top student in English. But, you know, my... I'm sure that came in handy when it came to, when it came to writing books and, and scripts well, and so on. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I had no notion as a 15-year-old that, you know, I had any talent or was any good at writing because, you know, unlike my science teachers, my English teachers didn't ever give me the impression that writing was something someone like me could actually do for a living or do, you know, professionally. It was just mm -hmm. I was in school, I was studying English and I happened to be do well in whatever they asked me to do. But there was no sense from my my English teachers that it was something I should pursue as a career or or, or even a hobby. Whereas 
you know, I'd really credit my science teachers for, for making me appreciate that science was something that I could perhaps contribute to, that science as a cultural activity, as a professional activity was something I could do. And, uh, you know, for me, my teachers were very influential because, uh, you know, I came from a rather peculiar background where my, my, the adult, other adults in my life were not necessarily giving me advice uh, in those terms. That That's really interesting. I, I think having read a little bit about you and read quite a little bit of your work, um, um, Alan, um, you, you, you are a bit of a polyglot, aren't you? I mean, you, you are interested in not just science, but you're interested in pedagogy. You you speak several languages, I think. I think, am I right in thinking that you um, even you even speak a little bit of Spanish? I grew up uh, speaking uh, a dialect of Bangla, uh, Sileti. Okay. And then, uh, like lots of students, I learned French at school. But um, I, I worked in Guatemala for a while in my 30s. Uh, I went and worked uh, at a kind of voluntary organization there. And I, I had to learn Spanish for that job. Um, and uh, that was wonderful. I, I think Spanish is a lovely language. I wish I'd studied it at school. And I, I wish I'd had opportunities to, to speak it more after coming back from Guatemala. But um, you're very polite, Jose, the way you describe me. I would um, say I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, really. I've, I've been very lucky, as I said, I've, I've had lots of opportunities to try lots of different things. And it's only very late in life, really, when I, when I was approaching my 40s, that I, I understood that writing was something that I really enjoyed doing and that I would like to get better at and continue doing. Um, so. Uh, you know, I wish I'd known at 18 that, you know, I, I wanted to, that I could write. I, th I think there was a little voice in my head always that said I wanted to write, but I kind of didn't dare to dream that it was a possibility mm. until honestly, really late in my 30s. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm approaching 50 now and I, I you don't I, look it, Alan. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping, you know, over the next few decades, if I have them, I'd really like to work on my craft as a writer and become a better writer. Okay, fabulous. Now, I, I know you're a science teacher. I'm, I'm not a science teacher. And, and funnily enough, I, I came to know your work via not science, but actually your interest in, in, in improving teaching uh, teaching methods and, and in pedagogy. Um, so can, can you tell us why you think that improving teaching methods is so important and perhaps delve into what teaching methods you think are the most important that perhaps people should be paying more attention to? I, I just want to clarify first that, you know, I, I, I am by no means an expert in, in teaching. I, I really find it difficult to, to put myself forward in such a role because I think teaching is such a complicated and complex task. I, I think it there are no simple solutions. Um, I, I do think, however, there are obviously certain approaches that work better than others and, and for me this this sounds uh, you know a bit wishy-washy but first and foremost i think our relationships with our students have to come first i think if you, if you can't establish good relationships with, with your students you know you, you you're you're losing from the beginning mm -hmm. um but for example in science teaching i think it's really important to to know what you want to teach and why and what you're doing and why so uh, a very simple example of this is you know in science teaching often 
we're required to to use practical work there's an expectation that we do practical work historically science lessons have always used practical work but mm -hmm. you know for example the the research clearly shows that often practical work has been a waste of time because you know students see it as an easy lesson where they can just turn their brains off and run around and and mess around and and what, what you know, do you think about that well i i think practical work has probably improved in the last few years because we've had these sorts of discussions because of the research mm. um i think the the way to use practical work is as a teacher to know exactly what you want to achieve from a lesson where you're doing practical work mm. and it, if it's it's got to be very specific you, you can't just have an idea oh we're going to do this practical and that's the objective that you're going to complete the practical mm. as if mm -hmm. by some magical process doing practical work teaches children science we know that's not the case the research is very clear about that so you know what is it you want students to walk away with having done that practical and if you as the teacher are clear about that then you can make sure your students are clear about that and you know there's a very simple phrase that um you know i use and i think increasingly other teachers use that during practical work you know students really have to be minds on as well as hands on you know practical work shouldn't be about just following instructions to set up some piece of apparatus to make it mm. do something mm. and collect these predetermined results to my shame i i think i realized later on in my career the importance of actually telling students exactly what we were doing and crucially why we were doing it to just get them into the frame of mind where they don't see the purpose of the lesson as irrelevant to them and and it took me a few years to actually just go yeah it's important that they know not just what we're doing but how we're going to do it and what the purpose of it will be when we get there i think reflects the work of um, dylan william i think when you, you got to tell them where they are, where they need to be, and how to get there. And if you make those three things really clear, you know, a lot of the work is is done. Is that what you think happens in your experience? I think so, but I think it's very easy to to talk about these things and to, to kind of intellectually grasp them. I think it's much more mm. difficult to, to deliver it on a daily basis when you're teaching mm. five lessons a day. And I think often, you know, teaching is such a tough job it's it's you're on all the time you know it's not like uh, an office job where you know you can slow down a bit if you're if you're personally having a bad day you you can just take it easy and you can slow down and unfortunately when you're a teacher it's just so non-stop that we teachers may have the best of intentions we may intellectually grasp the best approaches but sometimes you know you're just trying to make it through the day and um, I don't think we can hold that against teachers what I do think we can do is you know try to spread good practice try to make teachers aware of them and and do our best to make sure that you know schools are places where teachers can flourish as well as students you know I, I often say this I often think you know we all know that schools are for children we know that the purpose of schools is to to allow children to fulfill their potential to flourish and i think it often is forgotten that schools are communities and and without teachers schools wouldn't work and yet um we we don't often put enough focus on ensuring that our teachers are able to to deliver work which allows uh, for our goals and objectives for children to be met but in 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 order for that to happen uh, 
we really need to have systems in place which which allow our teachers to consistently be at their best mm. um and and you know this comes back to your theme of leadership you mm. know school leadership should should be about delivering the aims and objectives of the school for the children but there must be a, a fundamental understanding that it is the teachers who ensure this happened mm-hmm. and and this can't possibly happen if your staff cannot also feel that they are in an environment where they can flourish absolutely on that thought we're going to go on a break uh, now alum and i'll pick up the conversation with you after this break hello everyone I'm Cliff Canning, headmaster at Embley, a wonderful school in stunning grounds near Romsey in Hampshire. On the 14th of April, we'll be hosting our annual education conference. I'm very excited to share with you the wealth of knowledge and expertise that our speakers have to offer. The theme of the conference is leadership at every level. And let me tell you, it's not just a catchy slogan, it's a call to action. Leadership is essential in every aspect of our lives, whether it's the classroom, the boardroom or the sports field. And that's why we've brought together some of the most accomplished leaders in the field to share their stories and insights. But don't take my word for it. Have a listen to our podcast and hear for yourself the valuable insights and advice they have to offer. And once you have a sense of that, head across to our website at www.embley.org.uk forward slash conference and book your place. I look forward to seeing you. So welcome back. Fantastic. Um, Alan, you were talking about the culture of the school, I believe, just now and what leadership means and the sort of things that need to be in place for teachers, crucially, in your view, I think that's what you were saying, for teachers to be able to develop the objectives of the schools and and deliver on those. So what should senior leaders do to help teachers? Look, uh, I'm loathe to kind of answer this question because you know I'm not a, I, I've never been in senior senior leadership at a school you know the the most I've uh, the highest position I've held is is kind of uh, as my own head of department in a very small physics department but um, to me I, I think you know any senior leadership team which doesn't appreciate that teachers are also in their care if you like mm-hmm. um, that can't possibly be doing their job properly I, th- I think you know it's imperative that senior leadership recognize the stresses and strains that classroom teachers are often under and and to do their best to to minimize those mm-hmm. and to create a working environment which allows teachers to to consistently deliver at their best and, and mm-hmm. you know I, th- I think we mustn't forget that teachers are pe- people with their own lives and their own internal lives which, which often affect what what happens in the classroom mm-hmm. and, and so you know ensuring that you know teachers feel safe in, in the working environment that teachers feel valued that mm-hmm. teachers feel that they are in an environment where where they can grow and you know accomplish things and so forth i think that that ensures that your students ultimately benefit fantastic and in terms of professional development what do you think the key elements uh, would be for a school to put in place to help teachers. I think if you if you've got everything right in a school in terms of teacher workload and and so forth, I think mm-hmm. if teachers have the kind of time and space to think about their own professional development, then 
you're more likely to have teachers take up opportunities like, you know, extracurricular uh, professional development courses and so forth, mm-hmm. you know, master's courses, uh, etc. You know, myself, my first teaching uh, experience as an NQT was mm-hmm. in a deeply unpleasant environment. Um, you know, I was a newly qualified teacher. I, I really didn't like the management approach of the school. I mm-hmm. felt oppressed. Um, I felt unhappy so that I, I handed in my resignation, you know, mm-hmm. halfway through my second term. And I, I found the, the response of the head teacher at the time disgusting. Instead of asking me, uh, this young man who had, who had worked his arse off for, mm-hmm. for the school, instead of asking me, why are you leaving? Which mm-hmm. surely shouldn't be the question he asked. He, he simply said, you realise you won't get another job. And to which I replied, I've already secured one. You know? yeah. um, and then, you know, I, my second school, I, w- I had such a happy time. Uh, I w- mm. It was an environment where I was trusted to teach physics yeah. um, with a lot of autonomy and so forth. And, you know, I was so happy there. Within a year, I had the headspace and the enthusiasm to, to go and do mm. a master's in science communication, yeah. which I thought would develop me as a teacher and so forth. You know, going from an environment where I felt stressed and unhappy so much so that I, I wanted to leave to a new teaching environment where I felt so valued that it reinvigorated my passion for science and education so much so that I went off and did a master's in my own time with my own money. You know, that's what I mean about creating an environment where teachers are sufficiently happy that they want to go and learn more, that Mm -hmm. they want to go and push themselves and and develop their professional credentials and so forth. So, you know, it it sounds very, very, you know, trite, really, but I'm sure happy teachers. It's it's fascinating. I I mean, I I, I have a degree of sympathy because I when I was training to be uh, a teacher, when I was doing my PGC placements I, I didn't go to very happy places when I was in those places and I, there were points where I was considering my career choices because I came into teaching later I, I, I spent I spent um, um, a few years in logistics international logistics um, after I left university and um, when I then gave up that line of work to uh, do a PGCE ended up in some schools where um, the atmosphere in the school, and I think you described it as oppressive. I, I wouldn't say oppressive for me, but it was unpleasant. It was, yep. it was, there was no, there was no human touch. There was no, yep. uh, you know, you, you, you were a number essentially, and you came in, did those lessons and the feedback would be not very helpful, to be honest with you. Um, and I was wondering my career choice at that point. I, I, I think fortunately, I think I'm glad how things have turned out. Um, fortunately, I stuck with things. And I, I, I was in a position similar to you, actually, when when my last longer placement was very unhappy. Um, they had offered me a place to work there the following year, but I declined it um, because when I had a meeting with the with the with the with the head um, and my PTC tutor who came to support me. Um, and I, you know, we, we we had a meeting along those lines about, you know, the atmosphere here for staff is not great. And that's the reason why, having told you verbally that I would be here next year, I'm afraid that I am now applying somewhere else. She made comments. I mean, she wasn't as clear cut as you as you mentioned your head would be as if you never find a job elsewhere. Yeah. But she did make comments to say, well, finding jobs is going to be difficult. Then. Yeah. And and then I ended up uh, working in a very prestigious school in 
Zari um, and um, and uh, the leadership of a head of department who, who was fantastic, supported me really well. Um, I did my NQT year. I, I progressed to head of Spanish within, I think, three years of uh, my qualifying as a teacher. Um, and and I've, I've loved it. I really have loved it ever since. And I've been I've been in places where uh, I've enjoyed working with my colleagues. And it's so important to be able to go somewhere where there is a degree of connection between you and the people you work with. So that is uh, that is very important. But anyway, enough about me, Alan. Um, can I? What I'm really interested with you to explore a little bit is 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 this. Listen, you know, so you. I have a clear idea. So anyone listen will have a listening will have a clear idea of of you know you wanted to be a teacher. Physics was your passion, but then you've gone into writing. You've gone into these are the things we mentioned at the beginning. You've been into local, been a local gov- councillor, um, governor of a school, and then broadcaster. Why that progression? Why that transition from teacher to all these other things? I, th- I think uh, when I was. A young man, I was quite restless. I, I had a lot of time on my hands, even mm. being a teacher. You know, now as a as a father of two young children, I, I can't believe I ever had that much time and energy. But mm. um, I also, I've, I've always felt very lucky. You know, I felt that I the the that I had had opportunities which had transformed my life for the better. And I, you know. To put it but bluntly, I think I also felt a sense of guilt. You know, I came from a very impoverished background. I grew up in a community uh, which was very deprived. And so I was always determined, uh, you know, it sounds very cheesy, but I was always determined to try and give back to my community. So, you know, from a very young age, I, I was uh, volunteering for things. So, you know, I, I've sat on the uh, board of a local adventure playground charity Um and I've worked in, you know, homeless people's soup kitchens and so forth. And then, mm. you know, um, after graduating from university, I did some work for a local member of parliament in the constituency office. And and that led to me briefly uh, running for, for, for local election and becoming elected as a, a local councillor in Southwark, where, where I did one term and became very disillusioned with politics frankly I I realized that you know it wasn't about helping people I mean you know I'd been very naive and uh, kind of child childishly optimistic about what one could accomplish in such a role Mm -hmm. and uh, so you know I've, I've always wanted to do be useful as a as an individual I think you know um as you as you know, you know, I'm, I'm I, I have no religion. I, I, I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. And that really does affect my worldview, because I think we have to make meaning and purpose for ourselves in this life. And I think yeah. our fellow human beings uh, are the source of things like comfort and meaning and purpose and love. And in order to, to, to really make the most of one's life, uh, being useful to our fellow human beings is a way to achieve those things for for those of us who don't have a a greater power to believe in or Mm -hmm. uh, you know so forth so I I think that's what has motivated me in my kind of uh, limited political work and my ongoing voluntary work my my sense of kind of trying to to contribute back to my fellow fellow humans Mm. Um, in terms of the writing, well, I, I explained earlier that in my second year of teaching, I, I studied for a master's in science communication, and this really uh, introduced me to to this idea that one could 
communicate science to, to the public outside of classrooms and mm. I, I guess I just got a taste for it and um, whilst I was doing that masters I, I was offered a job at the BBC which I, I, I found impossible to resist so I, I left teaching at the end of my third year and went and worked in television for about eight or nine years and it was during that time where I, I realized that creating things like television like scripts was something that I took great pleasure in and and you know that's when the seeds were planted that you know I could perhaps write about science and and communicate science with the public in different ways however you know I I found television as an industry not to be one that I was particularly happy in and I really missed the sense of community that I had being a teacher you know the sense of purpose you know whatever you say about teaching you can't say that it's not a useful thing to do, you know. So, as I said, this sense of being useful has always been really key to my sense of happiness, if you like. And so I missed that when I was working in television. So I went back to teaching part time mm-hmm. and really loved being a school teacher again, being part of a community w- with a shared purpose, you mm-hmm. know. And I think a lot of people don't understand this about teaching and teachers. You know, you're you're part of a, a a community of people who are trying to do the same things, which is to to help these children to get be ready to go out into the world. Right? That's an that's a hugely important job. We don't get much recognition for it. We don't get much uh, reimbursement for it. But you know, for someone like me, it, it really fills a gap in my life. At the same time, I realise that. I, I had a craving to to create things and make things and so forth. And, you know, 10 years in television really gave me the the, the tools I needed to, to explore that side of things. And I, as I said, I've been very fortunate. I've For the last 15 years or so, more than 15 years, you know, I've been working part time as a teacher, but also been able to make things like videos. Uh, I've written live science shows uh, and I've written books and, and really books are are what I'm doing now because mm. it's much easier to write a book than to make a television program when <laughs> when I'm stuck at home. Fascinating stuff. Um, Alan, we're really fortunate that you're coming to the Embley Education Conference in April. And I think you'll be talking to us about how everyone can be a science teacher. Now, that can be rather daunting for those of us who know very little about science. What What do you mean by that? Well, you're you're exactly my target audience, really. I think a lot of people are, as you put it, daunted by science, mm. and I don't think they should be. I, th- I think there's something that we're getting wrong in science education, and there's something not quite right with a culture which, in which some people can be frightened or daunted by by science. For me, science is a cultural activity. You know, people really need to understand that it's something that ordinary humans do. And far too often, I think science is presented as, as something that only geniuses do. Yeah. But actually, you know, there are millions of scientists around the world and mostly they're just ordinary people. And and science is an activity much like art or literature or music that, you know, people are compelled to do because it's part of the human condition. I really believe this. I, th- I think science comes from the same place that art and music and literature come from. It's it's what what I think we have an urge to do is is to understand the world in, in whatever way we can and then express that and share that whatever understanding we arrive at with our mm. fellow human beings. And, and science is one way of doing that. And I, I think a lot more people need to understand that and, and not be frightened by equations or numbers and so forth. 
and and to be able to appreciate science in the same way that we can appreciate a piece of music just by listening to it and one of the things that that is a problem we know this as research that shows uh, that children who grow up with even vaguely positive notions of science in the home go on to do better at science in school there's a this um concept of science capital that scientists mm. social scientists at uh, University College London have come up with and it, and it's little things like you know if you grow up watching science documentaries or if your parents take you to the science museum and if they don't say they hated science at school you you th that all helps you to have a better experience mm. of science in school and I think we've won the battle to convince parents that reading is the most important thing they can do with their children mm. uh, I'm trying to to fight a battle where I try to convince parents and carers that you know, even if they don't know any science, even if they find it frightening, they, they kind of owe it to the children in their care to mm. introduce them to science as, as young as possible, really. Mm. Uh, and, that, and that's where my work has focused in the last, few, you know, five years or so. And that that's, again, what my new book, um, which is called Why Don't Things Fall Up, attempts to address. Um, and, and that book is particularly aimed at adults who either didn't like science at school or felt they didn't mm. understand it at all. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's where my work will continue to focus in the immediate future. I think your work is really important for people like me who are not trained as scientists. I think, the, the, uh, I think sometimes people scoff at the notion of popular science, but that's how I became interested in science. Um, you know, I may not understand things conceptually using equations, but if somebody like you, who is able to uh, conceptualize things for me in a different way, makes it accessible, makes those concepts accessible to me in a way that I can understand, then I'm able to form um, ideas about, you know, how things work in the world. I may not know the equation behind it, but I know the logic, why, what follows what, and for, for what reason things happen. So um, I think the work you do is incredibly important, Alan, and, and, and thank you thank you for it. Where, where can we find more of your work? Um, unfortunately, the new book won't be out until um, August, but uh, you can just go to any good bookshop and uh, they'll have my other books. Fantastic. Well, it's been delightful talking to you this morning. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. And we look forward to welcoming you in person to the Embley Education Conference. Um, thanks ever so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shooting Azimuths. Please don't forget to check the Embley Education Conference website www.embley.org.uk forward slash conference and subscribe to this podcast to be notified when the next podcast episode is available. Goodbye for now.